Today's show is sponsored by LarissaDavis.com. Larissa Davis, former art director of Quilting Arts, Stitch, Cloth Paper Scissors, and Modern Patchwork Magazines, loves collaborating with crafters to present their art in unique and thoughtful ways. Whether you need help with a website, logo, e-newsletter, e-book, or a photo shoot, Larissa will bring your creative vision to life so you can keep crafting. Learn more at larissadavis.com. Welcome to episode 66 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today we're talking about craft publishing with my guest, the publisher and chief visionary officer of Martingale, Jennifer Keltner. A 30-year veteran of the publishing industry, Jennifer Keltner brings to Martingale vast experience in editorial, management, and marketing. In her previous position as Crafts Group Content Chief at Meredith Corporation, Jennifer oversaw an expansive quilting and crafting media group, including magazines American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More, and websites allpeoplequilt.com and howtosew.com. With a degree in journalism from the University of Nebraska, Lincoln, Jennifer began her career with the Kansas City Star, where she spent a decade in advertising sales. Her interest in crafting, quilting, and sewing brought her into the world of magazine publishing. Prior to joining Meredith, she worked for two different publishers focusing on sewing and crafting titles. She joined Meredith in 2000 and spent 14 years there in a variety of editorial and management roles before leaving to lead Martingale in April of 2014. As publisher and chief visionary officer, Jennifer oversees the content, direction, sales, and marketing of all Martingale products. Her passion for creating compelling content for makers is at the heart of her work every day. Jennifer currently serves on the advisory board for the International Quilt Study Center and Museum, and on the board for international, the International Quilt Association. Jennifer Keltner, welcome. Thank you. You are the publisher and chief visionary officer in Martingale, and I'm just wondering if you can describe for us what does that mean exactly? Sure. Um, I'm not sure if I can explain it exactly, but I can, give you, I can give you the broad strokes of it. As the publisher for the company, I'm really um, in charge of overseeing the content development, the direction of uh, books that we publish and other products that we publish, and also seeing it through from the concept of the books all the way through to completion. So I also manage the sales and marketing aspects of the business in addition to the editorial production and, and design features of it. Um, the part of my title that people are usually more dazzled by is the chief visionary officer, which is um, is the fun part of my job. And really that's about the direction of the company and about seeing where um, we believe that publishing is going to be headed what the future of it looks like and how to best position Martingale to be ready to face those um, changes and challenges and opportunities that are ahead of us. So that part of my job is really about looking at what comes next and pretty far down the road. I mean, you know, we're looking at two plus years down the road as we're planning things out. And you're, you came to Martingale at a time of a lot of change in publishing and a lot of change in craft publishing. 
I mean, it's it's sort of a scary time. It's an exciting time, but it's it's really an upheaval. I feel like um, mostly due to the internet and to the way that um, craft media is being created and distributed to consumers. It's really quite a different time, and so I imagine that um, sort of being able to look ahead and think about that is really key to keeping Martingale uh, relevant, you know, in the future. It is. And I think, um, you know, I've been fortunate to spend my entire career in publishing, but I tell people I'm sort of working my way back to stone tablets and chisels. I uh, started out my career in the newspaper business at a time when there was a morning edition and an evening edition. Oh, right. Um, so I, I think, you know, it, it, it's easy to look at the last few years and say like, oh my gosh, there's this epic sea change. For me, I think if you're in publishing, you're in journalism, you're in uh, something in that channel, it's a constant change. And you really have to thrive and enjoy that change. If you want a job that every day is going to look the same or that's going to be the same today as it is uh, 10 years from now, you probably don't need to be in a journalism career because it's been changing from, you know, the time that I got into it 30 years ago to now and it really is just a matter of figuring out um, how to best deliver compelling content. Because to me, at the end of the day, that's really what publishing, good publishing, is about. It's not so much um, trying to, to change the tide of progress or the delivery mechanism of things. It's just really understanding your audience and then figuring out how best to serve that audience with compelling content. That's a so, great, yeah, that's a great point. So it's not about hanging on to the old forms of things or just forcing them to stay relevant. It's really about um, thinking about what is the purpose of those things. The purpose of those things is to deliver this content to people. And so right. we can still hold that purpose. We just can change the way it's done. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. So when you came to Martingale, in 2014, what what are the big goals? Like, what were the big goals then for the future? What are, what are your big goals for the future? And what is the kind of guiding mission about, like, what is Martin Gale's mission? Well, I think that our mission is, um, you know, we have a, a very brief mission statement that we put now in the front of our titles. Um, and it's it's simply this. We empower makers who use fabric and yarn to make life more enjoyable. That's and lovely. that's really what we're doing. We're not, uh, you know, the Journal for Advanced Medicine. Nobody's going to live or die based on what we do. But the reason people do what they do in regards to our books is because they want to make their life more enjoyable, whether they enjoy the process of creating things, quilting, knitting, sewing, crocheting, um, or they like to make things to give to their family members, their friends. It's a legacy. It's a it's a piece of themselves. It's how they show their family that they care for them. So really that's our mission is to, to empower the people who, who want to do these hobbies and be makers of things to make their lives more enjoyable. And all of our products should be geared towards that goal. Okay. Um, and, and that seems like that's, that's going to be the same goal going forward for all decision making that you, you know, kind of guides all the decisions that you're faced with. It does. I think I, I can share with you sort of um, an example that that I use internally and externally when I when I talk to people, and it, and it's this: if I asked you to go to your bookcase and pull out your favorite book, um, and and bring it to 
a, you know, a group meeting. And I've done this in our office where bring your favorite how-to book in. I don't care if it's a book about cooking or gardening or sewing or quilting or whatever it is, but bring your favorite book in. And, and you can invite your friends to do this if you are an aspiring author. Invite your friends to bring in the kinds of books that you want to create. So if you want to write a novel, invite your friends to bring a novel. If you want to do a how-to book, invite your friends to bring a how-to book. And ask everyone at the table to sort of describe what it is about that book that makes it their favorite book. When you do this, almost to a person, it doesn't matter if you have very outgoing, gregarious friends or friends who are super shy and rarely say something in a group. When someone has a book that they love, what they'll do is start to tell you about it, and then they'll generally take their hand and start to sort of pet the cover and clutch it to their chest and tell you what a great book it is and how it makes them feel or what it makes them believe. Or, you know, I love this book because it's like I have the teacher right there with me and I got to take a class with her and she was so fun. And I just wanted to take that home with me. Or I love the way the quilts look in these pictures because this is how I want my house to look. Or, you know, if it's a cookbook, if I read this recipe, I imagine making it as a dinner party for my friends, whatever that is. But there is something magic in a great book that makes people feel like it speaks to them. And that's what a good book, that's what compelling content means. Rarely will someone bring their favorite book in and say, it's my favorite book because it has 32 patterns in it. And that was a great value. Right. I mean, there's something about it. There's a voice to it. There's something about the way that it looks. There are little tips or call out boxes that share with them information that they didn't know that makes it easier for them to do their hobby. So I think that's our goal when we are creating content at Martingale going forward is every book needs to have that magic moment and the author needs to know what that is. What What is her magic that she wants her book to have? Um, and I think that that's probably the most important thing we can put into any book. And that's the biggest change probably in the industry. I mean, it used to be before the internet and social media were super uh, filled with patterns that the only place you could get patterns was in single pattern sales or books. And now, you know, free patterns are a dime a dozen, but there's not much magic in the free pattern online. It's just a project and you want to make it. Um, it doesn't generally light your heart on fire and make you think, oh my gosh, you know, I know exactly what she's talking about. It's generally more down and dirty than that. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And so how do you recommend, you know, if there are aspiring authors listening, you know, how do you recommend that they figure that out, their magic moment, you know, like some the thing about them that, or about what they have to offer that does make uh, for a, a compelling book that could, you know, come together in a collection or um, just be right. expressed in a way that would make people have that hug it to your chest feeling, which is really what you're after. And it's what in this day and age, I, I agree with you, sells books. Right. So I think it takes a lot of research and self-reflection and study about what what your thing is. Um, I tell people that, you know, the worst 
sentence you can utter to a publisher without thinking through is I want to do a book. Oh, interesting. And I say, that's kind of like me and you can't see me, but if you could, if I said, I want to do a marathon, <laughs> you would look at me and say, okay, well, you probably need to start doing some running then. And you probably need to make a plan <laughs> and you need to run on the regular and you need to change your lifestyle. So I want to do a book is sort of that same thing. Well, you know, doing a book isn't like doing a load of laundry. It's a, it's a big commitment. It takes a long time. It takes a lot of work. It's a huge investment for both the publisher and the author and all the other people who are involved with it. And so I think where people get excited, it's like the idea of having a book with your name on it is exciting, but the idea of doing a book is a whole lot more work. And I think that the best advice I could give to an aspiring author is really look at what you're trying to do. What is it that you think as an author you can bring into the publishing world that is unlike anybody else's book? It is not a case of, um, you know, finding your favorite book and then saying, I love this book. I want to do a book just like it. Well, that book already exists. And, and why would somebody buy your book as opposed to the book you're clutching to your chest? I mean, if that book is out there and it's a great book and it does what it does perfectly, then we probably don't need to duplicate it. So what's your thing? I mean, are you the expert in color? Are you the expert in combinations of stitches? Are you um, the person who, who gives people an easier way to do things, that you simplify the construction of things? Are you the time saver? You know, you sort of have to identify what your gift is and what your niche in the marketplace is. And then do a little research. Go out and look and see, are there a 100 books on the topic if you Google, you know, strip quilting, or are there two books? You know, does the book exist already? Has somebody done it? And if they have done it, and you want to do it, how are you going to do it better or differently? And it it really does come down to creating almost a business plan for why, why you think you're the person to write the book, why you think you're the best person to write it, what you're going to bring to the subject matter that hasn't been there before, and what your sort of magic or secret sauce is going to be. Now, Sometimes if you're not used to thinking about the way that you share your craft or, or, you know, your maker gift with people, it does take, if you're teaching, you know, listen to what your students are saying. If there's an aha moment for them that they're, you know, uh, going, oh my gosh, you always have the best ideas for how to sew triangles together or whatever the topic is that you're teaching or your color combinations are always flawless. How do you do that? You can sort of cull those things out of the experience that you have, but it does take a lot of study and a lot of introspection about what, what you want to bring to the marketplace and why you think you're the best person to do that. Because when you start to go out and look for a publisher for your book, those are the questions you have to be able to answer. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, it's just 16 great patterns in a book. And it might be better that those are single patterns or that they're online um, there might not be a reason to invest all the time and energy into creating a book unless there's something compelling about it.
Yeah. So two things strike me. First is that sometimes your specialness um, is right in front of you and you don't notice it because in your mind, the idea of a book is so big and so complex and so sophisticated that it couldn't just be the thing you're known for in your little circle. Do you know what I mean? And so sometimes you just don't even see it. But um, if you look and say, well, what what is really like, what am I doing every day? You know, what what am I known for every day and the people who know me? It's often right there in front of you. And, and exactly. it is less complex. And right. Less... And it doesn't have to be brain surgery. Exactly. And some people think it, it has to be the most complex, no. intricate, detailed thing. That may not be it. I mean, your thing may be simply you can demystify some part of the process better than anybody else. And everybody knows how to do calculus because of you. Um you know, right. simplified it. So, right. So look where you are right in front of you and, and think there and, um, because sometimes that's where the answer lies. And the other thing I was, I wanted to talk about was sort of that idea of maybe it is better to put these 16 patterns out as separate PDFs and sell them yourself rather than doing a book. So one question I have now that I hear makers, um, ask and ask me and ask one another is, is it still worth it? you know, in 2016 to write a craft book, you know, because I've written two, two, actually three. Um, my third one is like smaller, but two bigger craft books and, um, myself and, you know, it, it takes a year. It really does. It takes, basically it takes a year of your life to write this book. And during that year, it can be hard to run the rest of your business. It can be hard, for example, to release your own new products or just spend enough time on uh, marketing or spend enough time on your blog. You know, your blog can suffer. So other aspects of your business kind of do get put on a shelf for a little bit while you're focusing on this book. And so, and sometimes people will say, well, I don't know if I'm going to earn back, you know, really earn back the money that it, it, I lost right. during that time. So, so if you talk to those people, why is it still worth it to write a craft book? Well, I think there's nothing better than watching someone hang on to your book and say, oh my gosh, this is my favorite book. I love this book. I want to, you know, a lot of people, much like virtual cooking, people who don't cook a lot collect cookbooks. Um, there are a lot, there's a lot of virtual quilting or virtual knitting or virtual crocheting that people want to own that piece of your artistry and they want to go back to it and refer to it forever. And I once uh, worked with a copy editor for several years who used to say, you know, magazines and newspapers are fine, but they go away. A book is forever. I mean, your book is in the Library of Congress. Your book is in the library. Your book is in places that that will be there forever. Um, and so I think the answer to is it worth it to do a book uh, is a very personal one because everybody has to make the decision. Yeah, there's a trade-off um, for sure, but it really depends on what what it is that you're after. Are you after some lasting uh piece that you can use if you want to teach from it. I mean, a lot of our authors are also teachers and lecturers, and they use their book as part of their classes that they teach. So they don't constantly have to churn out um, new single patterns. They can just continue to go back to the well that is their book. Some people use it as a way to, if they have a technique that is, you know, unusual or more complicated than you can put in a single pattern, They use a book because they can do the how-to photography and explain all the steps to it. And then they can go back to what they love to do, which is create more patterns around that technique. But the how-to for the technique is really becomes a reference book, so to speak. Um, 
So I think it's a very personal decision about whether or not you want to invest the time in the book. And it does take a year. I mean, it, it can take 18 months, um, depending on the length and complexity of a, of a title to get it to market. But I think it depends on your big picture for your brands. I mean, books can also open doors for you in terms of other things in the industry. Sometimes our authors are, um, you know, if they're new and people haven't heard too much about them, but they produce a terrific book, it opens doors for them to go on speaking engagements or teaching uh, events or, you know, other conferences for quilters and makers. So, you know, books can open the door. Rarely does somebody publish their first book. And I mean, for most craft books, we're not talking about the John Grishams and the uh, right. J.K. Rowling. So it's not a it's not a get rich quick scheme for anybody, um, but it never has been. So really, it's about looking at your if you're a business woman or man and you want to you know craft and making to be your business. How does a book fit into that total picture? It's not um, it's not the one and only thing, but it might be a part of the mix if social media and print and single patterns, you know, uh, are part of your mix. I think it's something to consider. I want to take a minute now to talk to our sponsor, Larissa Davis. My name's Larissa Davis. My business is Larissa Davis Creative on the web at larissadavis.com. I am an art director and graphic designer. I worked in the craft industry uh, with Pokey Bolton, with Quilting Arts and uh, Interweave for 15 years. And now I've started my own business and I'm offering uh, this wealth of experience to crafters like uh, the people in your audience. I've done so much work through the magazines for crafters. I've seen all of these, you know, this amazing artwork. So I'm hoping um, to get more clients who are crafters who are starting out, who want to, you know, need a brand, they need a logo, they, they want some help with their website, whether that's just saying, hey, graphically, can you give me some direction? Because there's a lot of people, you know, crafters are pretty creative who want to do stuff themselves. So I'm happy to offer consultation or to do the whole nine yards with someone for publishing, self-publishing, that kind of stuff. Okay. So like um, if I had a sewing pattern and I don't really know how to use Illustrator that well, or I've sort of tried to learn it a little bit and I've gotten only so far, could you kind of, um, you know, digitize the templates and then create like a template for me in InDesign or something like that that I could use going forward? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I could create a, all the style sheets for you so that you could then take that and, you know, make everything uh, look appropriate for your brand. And where do you live? It's a cute little old farmhouse in Maine um, on the western side of Maine, really close to North Conway. Um, and it's a little, it's got five acres and a little barn and I'm here with my husband and my two kids. Nice. And how long have you been working for yourself? I just started uh, September 15th, actually, is when I started. That's when I concluded my last full-time position and decided, you know what, this is really, it's really time to launch out on my own and, and do something that I'm really passionate about. Yeah, congratulations. So has it, been, has it been fun so far to sort of be able to make your own decisions and be your own boss? Yes, that has been really wonderful. Thank you. I bet. Check out Larissa at larissadavis.com. And now back to my chat with Jennifer. Yeah, I agree with you as far as it being like a calling card. 
Mm-hmm. I do think that that's still true. Um, and I think that will always be true. I hope it is. I think it will be. Um, and I want to talk a little bit more specifically about the how-to parts of a book. Um, and so when you look at a how-to book, and I'm sure you're in this field and you're a connoisseur of how-to instructions and how-to books, what stands out to you as, as making a, a how-to book excellent? I think the voice of the author is important. If you are um, very detail-oriented in whatever it is you're teaching, and when you would go out and I would see you in person, you share a lot of techniques about the finer points of whatever you're making, I would expect that to mirror the voice of your book. If you're a you know, this doesn't have to be perfect. It can be a little wonky. I like the wonky aspect of it. Don't worry about it. Lop it off. We'll add more. Then I would expect your voice to mirror that in your book. Um, I think too often that's the part that authors and, and maybe publishers to some extent lose in the mix. They start to standardize things and everybody's book starts looking the same or sounding the same you know, because they turn over the the work of writing the manuscript or putting things together um, without really adding the, oh, yeah, I never do it that way. I do it this way. And I think that's what people want when they buy a book that is of a single author. They want that author's voice and they want to know, if I go take a class from you and I buy your book, I'm going to feel like I'm taking part of that class home with me. So I think that that's important. I think that um, I notice a shift in the last, you know, two to three years probably of less illustration and more photography. And that's just, you know, the changing times. People turn to YouTube for a video to watch how something's done or they do tutorials on their blog and they take more step outs along the way. Um, you know, my generation, when I came when I grew up, I was used to looking at illustrations in all of my textbooks. So illustrations are very familiar to people in, in a certain age bracket, but less so for younger makers because they don't have textbooks that have illustrations. They have textbooks that have photographs. So I think thinking about how to step outs in photography is an important part. But if you're making a book, that also creates more work. And I think that's what people don't think of. We are not sitting around taking how-to photography, sewing along as we go. You're generally, if you're illustrating something in six steps, you're making six step outs to be photographed. So mm -hmm. step one goes, you know, to point A, step two goes A and B, step three, A, B, C, and you're making that sample six times to get to that point. Is that yeah. So when I did my book, I um, my second book, I did all the step-by-step -step photos myself. So I was able mm -hmm. to do them in my home studio um, and and not have to replicate, like make everyone, right. you know, I was able to kind of, but that's why we chose it that way. Because my other exactly. choice, my other choice was to make, you know, essentially like 12 versions right. at each stage and then send them off to be right. photographed. And so this and worked that is better. Definitely something that people have to consider when they're deciding how they want to you know, invest their resources when they're publishing a book. Cause yes. you're exactly right. It is a lot easier if you are sitting there making it and can just stop and photograph it, but you also have to have the 
the resources and the setup to do the photography for yeah, that. Yeah, I used some of my advance to buy a light kit and a photography right. lesson uh, and a tripod. And so, right, there was an investment there for sure. Right. Um, but it was worth it for me as far as time was concerned. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit, since you, you were talking about standardization and people sort of losing their voice. You know, I think when I look at craft books, um, and I'm, I'm a, I love craft books. So I often go to the craft book section of the bookstore. I pull all the different books out and I, I look at them in all different ways. And it seems like there's almost like a high end kind of craft book that has like, it's it's not at all from a templated design. In other words, it's an original design of the book from the beginning. Each one is completely, you know, certain publishing houses do this where each one is completely different, beautiful right. end papers, hardcover, um, and it's like super unique. Um, and right. then there's kind of a, a, a kind of craft book that's sort of the opposite of that. Um, it's more soft cover, uh, all the all the titles from that particular publishing house kind of look the same, like it's a familiar, almost looks like a template where they sort of plug and play the different, you know, right. um, the different patterns and from one book to another. Um, and I, I've actually written both kinds, um, but there, it was a really different experience. So where does Martingale fall? Like, what are you, what is your belief system as far as I know doing a unique template where you're getting special fonts and everything else for that book, it's expensive. And it's like, is it going to pay out in the long run? And is it worth, you know, is that what we want to produce right. or... So where does Martingale fall? I think we fall somewhere in the middle of that. I mean, um, since I came to the company a couple of years, uh, it'll be two years in April, we've really looked at altering the template that was used and tried to get more diversity in fonts, in styles, in photography, in um, in format. And I'm a, I'm a big believer in, again, trying to include elements that even if you don't want to make the project on the page you're on in the book, there's something to read there or to stop and linger over the photography, the details, the um, tips, the advice from the maker or, you know, something like that. Um, Part of the challenge in creating books that are completely different sizes and shapes and uh, things like that is the distribution channels for them. There are a lot of distribution channels outside even the traditional uh, independent quilt shops or yarn shops that have racks and uh, rules about the size of book and whether or not it can go into certain displays based upon its trim size. So we have published uh, our first or maybe first in over a decade hardcover book this year um, with Sue Spargo's Stitches to Savor. That's a, a coffee table book, really, and has the beautiful end papers and the header and um, yeah, embossed cover. So we're exploring some of those things, but I don't think it will become the norm for us to always do you know, these one-offs that are really unusual. Will we have a sprinkling of them in our lineup every year? Yes. Will they become a huge percentage of it? No. The other thing is because we're working with a variety of uh, printers, you know, having a standard size paper that we purchase is helpful to us in getting the best value on our cost to print and produce books. Um, so that's another factor that comes into it. But as far as the look of the book, 
Um, they should look different, in my opinion. I mean, you shouldn't look at a cover and wonder, do I already own this book? To me, that's the, you know, that's the death knell. You should know, oh my gosh, I've never seen this before. I want to pick it up. I want to pet the page. I want to um, add this to my collection. And either I love this author and I want everything that she does, or, hey, this is a new to me technique or style, and I'm interested in learning more about it. So I think that we are not on that super high end of it. And I mean, we're also trying to be cognizant of there are lots of options for people in terms of where to spend their money. So I'm not sure we're ever going to have the most expensive book in the rack, but we're also not going to have the least expensive book in the rack. We're sort of in the middle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, I see books, even really craft books now, like at Anthropology. you know, like it's a, that's a very different book than the book right. I see at my local quilt shop on that rack where they're all soft cover and they're all the same size and they all kind of look similar. Do you know what right. I mean? Those are right. two really different craft books. And I think sometimes when people say craft book, they which one are they thinking about? You know, they're, they're not the same now. And Right. Uh, yeah. Right. And some of them are meant to be more inspirational and some are meant to be aspirational. And knowing the difference between whether or not, you know, it, it, are you looking at it for the photos and the ideas and the concepts or are you looking at the, I really need somebody to spell out every step for me and tell me exactly how many, you know, white two inch squares to cut and how many blue rectangles to cut and different people want different things in a book. I mean, there are some people who are like, I don't need to know every detail. I just want to look at the big picture and make it my own. And then there are equal number of people who I want to make it exactly like the photograph I see. And I want to know exactly where the blue rectangle goes next to the pink square, next to the blue triangle or whatever it is. They don't want to leave anything to chance. And and you have to know, again, who you're trying to appeal to. Do you want the person who's got sort of an artistic bent that is wants to take the concept and make it their own? Or are you going for someone who wants to recreate exactly what you've made? Right. Okay. Great point. So let's talk about marketing. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like, you know, I've been a blogger for almost 11 years now, a craft blogger, and I've seen a kind of different kinds of marketing pushes for new titles. Um, I think for years, uh, the blog tour was the go-to way you would, you know, round up maybe 10, maybe 15 bloggers and you'd have one a day for, you know, a steady two weeks each person would do a little review, a giveaway. Maybe they'd make a project. Maybe they wouldn't. Um, and that was it. That was the push for the book. Um, and, you know, it's we don't have the budget to go on a, a national book tour, <laughs> usually, unless people kind of fund their way uh, on their, you know, do that themselves. So at the same time now, blog tours, maybe it's tired. I don't know. I'd like to hear your take on blog tours and on new and sort of different approaches to marketing that, that you're thinking about. Right. Well, much like your magic moment when you're imagining what you want your book to be, the marketing of books has become uh, very tailored and unique to every author's experience. And it really depends on what your expertise is and what you're most comfortable with. And we are constantly partnering with our authors to look at new and different ways to do it. And I think it's not one size fits all. I mean, I think you're exactly right. You can't say, 
okay, we're going to do a blog hop and this is how it's going to go. And it's going to be 12 people and it's going to start on a Wednesday and end on a Thursday and, you know, two weeks later. And I think the more scripted you make it, the more likely you're not going to catch fire. That said, I think there are some blog hops that are extremely successful, but it's because of whatever the secret sauce is that that group of bloggers put in it. You know, how do you direct it? What what are you engaging people with? What are you making compelling about that blog hop that makes people want to chime in? And it's not always about what the prize is or what the giveaway is. I think sometimes it's about engaging your audience in a way that makes them feel like they're part of a community. And so we've done some things and I'll, I'll share with you um, just a couple successes that have happened lately. Um, we had a book called uh, The New Hexagon. Katja Mark is a shop owner out of Canada. And The New Hexagon was English paper piecing. And it was 52 blocks um, that were all English paper pieced. And that's a pretty n- narrow niche in the, the world of makers. I mean, not everybody wants to piece by hand and not everybody wants to do English paper piecing. So it was a book that had uh, while while it was certainly on trend at the time that it came out, I think in October of maybe 2014, um, was very on trend, but it was still a narrow niche of the audience. And what Katja did with our marketing team was conceive a program where she started a Facebook group to make uh, a quilt that was like a Millie Fiore designed quilt using the blocks in the book. And the blocks in the book did not build into this big quilt. Um, This was a separate program that she developed and designed. But in order to make the quilt, you had to have the book because that's where the block patterns were. But she would tell you to put, you know, six of block five surrounded by 14 of block eight and build out from there. And she started a Facebook group that was for people who wanted to quilt along with her. And over the course of the first, I'll say, the book came out in October. She started her quilt along in January. And by spring of that year, she had 7,000 plus people quilting along. That's a pretty incredible number of people to join that group and to post and to show pictures. And that book, uh, and Quilt Along went on all last year. It ended in December. And Katya made the decision, again, with some help with our marketing team, that instead of releasing another book uh, right away, she would create another Quilt Along. So she's got a new Quilt Along started this year, um, Hexagons, Quilts on the Grow for People on the Go, where she's making more hexagons, again, using her title, And again, this year, she's got several thousand people who are joining in to do this new thing. And what that means for her as an author is her book sales are continuing to be strong in the marketplace, and she's not going through all the work to make an entire new book and to take that year of time to create it. She's making the most of the book that she produced. So that's one example. Um, I think that, you know, Facebook groups are ways that people are using social media to get that community building going on. I think that Instagram and photos um, that 
are about the process of things going on and making things from a book can help people. So I don't think there's one right way to do it. What I think the common thread is maybe in programs that have been successful are that there's some sort of continuing program. And maybe that's what's changed from the blog hop um, where it's a two week duration and it ends is that it's, it's a continual marketing effort and it's using that over the long haul. Yes. And this is something that the author herself is running. So obviously she's consulting with their marketing team, perhaps getting some support um, as she plans it or along the way, but it is the author's effort. And I think that came as a surprise to me when my first book came out, how much it really falls on the author. And then after that, I was ready and I knew this is something that I'm going to have to take responsibility for, to be creative about. And it is almost like a whole nother job and you need to approach it with freshness and vigor and excitement. Um, and it's, I know this is effort for her. I'm sure she is in her Facebook group nearly every day and is, right. you know, working and planning and, and being creative there. And I think it's a partnership. I mean, I think we have the experience to share with our authors of things that have worked. We're always looking for ideas that work in other marketplaces outside of the craft book field that are, you know, maybe, um, recreatable in our industry. So it is a partnership in terms of, you know, we work along with Katya. We promote her group to our audience of people. We probably, uh, you know, our average reach to our consumers through our direct uh, newsletters is larger. So we're also doing things to promote the book and we're promoting it in other places, but we're making sure that when people would join that group, wherever they are, that her book is in the marketplace where those people are at so that they can go find the book at their local shop or their store or wherever they are. So I think it's, it's twofold, but you're right. I mean, there is no substitute for the author's voice. And I think that consumers today are savvy enough to know if it's not the author speaking to them, if it's, you know, somebody behind the curtain pulling the levers, kind of Wizard of Oz style, your voice is your voice and there's no substitute for it. So there's no one better to market a book than the author who created it because you are the most passionate about the content that you've created. And if people get excited about your voice and your comments and what you're doing, they're more likely to go, oh my gosh, I want to be just like you, Abby. How do I do that? Well, get my book and you can be just like me. All (laughs) my secret sauce is in there. So I think there, yeah, you're right. There's no substitute for it, but it's not a, you know, books don't sell themselves. They don't jump off the shelf. And again, unless you're JK Rowling and people are waiting for the next Harry Potter to come out, people aren't waiting in most cases because they didn't know you were doing it. So you got to tell them. Right. Exactly. And that brings me to my next question, which is about, um, people who are hopeful, who want to to do this, who who want to do a book, but are not saying to publishers, I want to do a book, but right. they, they are developing their secret sauce. They've kind of figured it out. They've got an idea and, um, and they're looking at Martingale as a potential publisher. Uh, what steps do you think that they should take? Sort of how, how should they put it all together and, uh, and present it to you? Like, what are you looking for in an author? Right. So we have author guidelines that are on our website. If they go to shopmartingale.com and scroll to the bottom, there's a tab called help and information. 
And if you click on that, there's a book proposal tab and you'll see our book proposal form. Um, and, and pretty much everything that we need for that uh, proposal is in that form. But in broad terms, again, it goes back to knowing your idea and your concept and then having a vision of what you think your book would include. So we ask people to answer those questions that I, I brought up at the beginning. You know, what's, what is your book about? We call it the sales hook internally. I mean, that's really, you know, what is it? If you had to describe your book in a paragraph or less, what is it? If, if someone said, well, what's your book about? Answer that question. And if you can't answer it succinctly, then keep working at it until you can. And, you know, it's got really great quilts or it's got super cute, you know, crocheted beanies is not a compelling book. Um, so it needs to be specific. And you don't necessarily have to be an eloquent writer. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying it has to be thoughtful. I want to write a book that's going to be about sewing from pre-cuts. And the thing that's going to be different about my book about sewing from pre-cuts is there's going to be no waste. You're going to use every strip in the roll. And that's one of the things that I think is missing in the marketplace or whatever it is. I mean, get specific about what it is that you want to write about and then share a little bit about who you are as an author and why you think you've got you know, something that's a difference maker. I'm well known in social media. I have a following of X and people come to me looking for this. I speak, you know, in my area at local quilt shops or I go to modern quilt guild meetings or whatever you do. Um, you know, share with us a little bit about who you are and your voice. And then also make it sound like you. If you're funny and, you know, a little bit, uh, snarky in the way that you write things and that's how you want your book to be, then write your proposal in that same language so that we get that sense of like, I'm a super fun person and, and people like my personality that comes through in my blog. Give us examples of what you've done. And then one of the things we ask you to think about is, is what the table of contents for your book would look like. You know, what it, what is it? Um, and some sketches of, of what kinds of projects you want to do. Um, they don't have to be finished. And more often than not, it's better if they aren't, because then um, if you're at the planning and designing stages, if we can say, oh, hey, this is a great proposal and a great book, but you want to do it all in you know red and white, and we've got three other red and white things on the lineup, is there a chance you would look at a different color palette? We still have time to do that. So, um Okay. And how important is that social media platform? I mean, I know, um, you know, it, it can be helpful, for, especially for marketing, if you come in and you've already got 25,000 Instagram followers. But... I don't think it's so much about what the number is, okay. but I think in today's world, you do have to at least be social media savvy. I think it's very difficult to be that partner in marketing your own book if you are you know, I, I don't use email. I've never used Facebook. I'm not, you know, unless you really have a name that everybody recognizes like, oh, you're the, you know, queen bee of this and everybody knows you and your, your quirky nature is, you know, gets you by without using any of the modern conveniences like a cell phone. Uh, 
that's a difficult hurdle to overcome because then we're basically cutting out a good portion of the marketing effort if you don't have a basis for that at all. It's also helpful to some extent if you have had some sort of retail relationship with your fans um, or your potential customers. I think that's also a difficult jump to make unless you really have thought through your book proposal and what your what your magic is going to be. If you have a social media platform, but you've never charged anyone for anything that you've done, you've never taught a class where people had to pay admission, you've never created a pattern that someone had to buy, everything you've done has always been free and a giveaway. I think it's a tougher road to hoe toward getting a book because you're saying, you know, fans of my brand, I've always given away everything that I've done and now I want them to pay for it. Right. That's if that's the case. Yeah, that's fascinating. I never thought about that before. Yeah. If that's the case, you really need to start thinking about how am I going to get people to pay for what I do? What extra is going to be in this book that's going to make people jump from my social media platform where they can get it all for free to now I want to pay you for that content. And I am a big believer in content has value. As designers, I think that you have to think about the time you invest in it. I mean, never mind spending a year to create a book, to constantly design new projects and patterns and give them away and not get any money back for that in any way, shape, or form is not a long-term, you know, profit-making venture for anybody. So I think that figuring out a way to have a retail relationship, maybe your simpler things are the things that you put on your blog for free, but you have some more complex things that people are willing to pay for. And whether it's a PDF download or, you know, whatever that is, you have to figure that out. But I think there is something about having a retail relationship. Now, sometimes people have never sold their patterns before, but they are affiliated with a fabric company or they are known for doing work for that. And people always love the work they do with certain fabrics and they wish they made patterns. So I'm not saying that everybody has to be, you know, a retail savant before they get to the point of publishing a book. I'm just saying, I think you have to think about what would make people pay for what you're doing if all you ever do is give it away for free. Right. Great point. Really good point. Um, and do you recommend that people hire an agent or do you prefer authors that don't work with an agent? We don't really have a preference. I would just say it's not as common in the craft book marketplace as it is. I mean, if you want to publish a novel, there's so much competition in the marketplace and such a plethora of things. Sometimes you can't get attention without having an agent. That is not the case at all in the craft book market. I mean, almost any publisher is willing to look through a proposal um, without having to have an agent. So it, again, it comes down to your business plan and how much you want to divvy up whatever money you do have to invest in the project. And if you want to share it with an agent, that's your, you know, that's a personal decision. Um, but I don't think it gets you any further or prevents you from getting any further, no matter which route you go. Okay. And let's talk a little bit about advances. Cause that's something that, um, is 
kind of hit you as soon as you uh, kind of get some uh, publishing house interested in your idea, right. then you're faced with these decisions. Um, and that's kind of sometimes where people want to get an agent because they don't even know, well, what do I, ex what should I expect? And right. is this what everybody else is being offered? And is this fair? And I don't know anything about this. Right. Um, and I do think you can negotiate it on your own. It's probably not for everyone. Um, but right. if you have that kind of mindset, you can do it. So what is Martingale's approach to advances against future royalties versus no advance and just uh, getting royalties right away? Right. Um, I think this is where probably the greatest misconception comes in for aspiring authors or people who are sure that if they'd looked around another corner, they would have found the golden ticket and they just, you know, settled too soon. So I'll, I'll say a couple things. First of all, I think the reason that people aren't more forthcoming about contracts and the negotiated deals that they make on books is much the same reason that we all know that everybody gets a salary for doing whatever they do when they work in the workplace, but everybody doesn't spell out how much they get paid to do what they do. Because your, your contract with your book publisher is really about the same as a salary negotiation. So nobody needs to feel bad about what they're asking for or, or, I mean, it's, it's the same way you would approach salary negotiation. Ask for what it is that you want. Some publishers might be able to accommodate you. Others won't, but I think you should be able to have a conversation with your publisher to say, you know what, here's, here's why we can do that or we can't do that for you. Is everyone treated exactly the same? No. Is everybody's book sell exactly the same? No. Do different people bring different things to the table? Yes. So I think you just have to have the confidence as a business person, and that's what this is when you deal with a publisher or even if you self-publish. I mean, you're a business and you're making a business decision. So take the emotion out of it, figure out what it is that you need or want, what your goals are, and then, you know, find the right fit. Martingale loves to work with both seasoned authors and new authors. We're not, we don't have a preference for one over the other. Um, and, and we're not for everyone. I mean, I think that's the other thing. I have great friends in the industry who publish with other publishers who were a better fit for them, um, you know, and, and that's fine. So I think it's not personal. It is a business decision at the end of the day for both the author and for Martingale. And you're finding the people that most closely align with what your goals and feelings are. So on the subject of advances, as a rule, we don't do advances. We pay on royalties. And some people think, well, you know, that really shorts the author because there's an investment that goes into to doing this book and the time that it takes in the year that I spend. But what I tell authors is what you don't see or I think don't think about while you're spending that year working on the book, we're also spending, you know, nine to 12 months getting that book to the marketplace. And on average, we spend $50,000 or more to get a book to market. That's without paying any advances. That's for all the parts that go into creating a book. That's hiring the editors, hiring the, you know, the photographer, the illustrator, the proofreader, the sales department to do a sales and marketing plan, 
our salespeople to go travel and find places to place your book that if you were self-publishing it, you probably wouldn't be able to get your book into some of the distribution outlets that we have. The, you know, we're the distributor of it. We're shipping them. We're, you know, paying the freight on them. We're warehousing them. So all of the things that you don't have to do when an author aligns themselves with a publisher, you don't have to have a garage full of books. You don't have to lick and stick envelopes and put the things in there. You don't have to buy mailing labels. You don't have to hire a photographer. You don't have to hire your own illustrator. That's our advance is putting that $50,000 plus into the book before we ever sell one copy. And it's also your publisher is really the bank that's rolling the dice on your book being a success. Because if the book doesn't sell any copies, that $50,000 is on us. We've spent that money. We don't go back to the author and say like, hey, we'd like to recoup the loss. I mean, that's our risk. That's our gamble. And that's why publishers are so careful about selecting uh, proposals for books that they believe they can sell in the marketplace. Now, in a perfect world, the book sells like hotcakes. As soon as it comes out, your royalties start coming and you start earning money on it. But at that point, when you're getting your royalties from your publisher, they still haven't recouped that $50,000 advance in expenses that they've put towards creating the book. They are earning that back as you're earning out royalties. So you're getting paid part of that before the book ever pays for itself, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. Um Okay. And I think that varies by publisher. And I think people should just know that. Like, It um, absolutely does. There yeah. are some authors that, uh, that publishers that pay advances and there are, there are some that invest less and, and produce, um, smaller quantities. So the money comes more upfront in the advance and less in royalties. I think, I mean, we have some veteran authors who've been with us who were on their ninth or 10th title with us, um, who, make a, a nice royalty on all the work that they've done with us and their books have been in print for a long time. But again, a craft book publisher is not the same as a best-selling New York Times novel. So for most people, it can be a nice addition to your income, but rarely are authors making all of their income off of their book royalties and not doing other things as well, like teaching and designing fabric and lecturing and, you know, using their social media platform to get advertising revenue. So I think it's, it's spinning a lot of plates um, because at the end of the day, most designers are self-employed or they're doing it part-time while they have a full-time job and they're, you know, spinning multiple plates. So it definitely takes time to build a business and to get to that point of critical mass where you have enough uh, cachet in your, your names and your titles if you're doing multiple books to get that royalty to build up to something that's like a nice steady stream. Right. And do you, this is my last question before our um, recommendations. Do you like to retain authors? You said you have some authors who are on their ninth or 10th title. Um, I mean, is that one of the long-term goals is if you have an author that, you know, their next book should be with you as well, or you at least like to sort of have dibs on that next book and be able to do their whole oeuvre, you know, together? Right. 
This is another thing that people need to, I think, consider when they're they're shopping for a publisher. I mean, you want to find the right people and the right fit for who understands your brand and your goals for your book, but also how your contract is written with that publisher. Um, Martin Gill does love, love to work with an author on multiple titles, but we don't require it. We don't have a right of first refusal clause in our contract that says, if you decide to do a second book, you have to bring it to us first. We let every project stand on its own merits. So our hope is that after you finish your first book, if it goes well and it sells well and you have an idea for another book or a follow-up, that you'll want to come back and work with us, but we don't hold anybody's feet to the flame and say, you have to come back with us. So uh, you know, I tell people we're not getting married. We're just going to have a great date here and <laughs> um, hopefully we'll get a second date with you. But you don't have to commit your lifelong, uh, you know, publishing life to us or give us your first born if you um, commit to doing a book with us. And that, again, is something that different publishers handle differently. Some will make you commit to the first three books or whatever. And if you have a great experience, that's wonderful. If you don't have a great experience, you know, you don't have as many options. Yeah. And you don't know that in advance, especially if it's your first book. Right. It might all seem dreamy um, right. in the first month. And then, you know, a, a year later or two years later when, you know, they chose a title you didn't agree with and the cover photo wasn't the cover photo you wanted. And then you felt that you didn't do enough for marketing or whatever. Um, you know, you can start to be like, wow, I'm stuck now, you know, and, and that can be hard. So you might wish you dated someone else. <laughs> so I think, uh, you know, we try very hard to make sure that our authors have a, an enjoyable experience in working with us here and that they want to come back and um, and work with us again, but that's up to the author to decide that. And um, and then when they come back with their second proposal, it's it going through that process in a little bit of an abbreviated way, but it still has to be a concept and an idea and something different in that second book that makes us think like, okay. This is, again, has that secret sauce, has that magic moment, something that people are going to find compelling and need to own the second version of whatever this author's voice is as well. Right. Exactly. Okay, great. So let's um, hop over to your recommendations. And you have a couple. Um, the first one that I'd love to talk about is uh, wool applique. We didn't really talk about your own hobbies and interests in uh, sewing and crafting. So it sounds like you're into doing some applique with wool. I am. I'm currently into uh, doing a lot of uh, Sue Spargo inspired embellishing and using wool and textures and using a lot of threads. Um, I just love her color palette, sort of a folk art. It's easy. It's forgiving and fun to okay. me. Okay. And it's portable. I can take it on the plane. I can take it to work. I can take it wherever I want to go. I don't have to plug my sewing machine in. Right. That's great. And that's the same reason why I like English paper piecing for exactly that reason. I can take it with me. Don't need to plug in the sewing machine. Right. So, yeah. That kind of thing, that kind of handwork is great. Um, and you are a recent newcomer to the Pacific Northwest. You uh, live in Washington State. Right. Um, and so how has that been? Where did you move there from? I the last lived in Iowa. So it's a big change coming to the Pacific Northwest. And I think the most eye-opening thing about being a Pacific Northwesterner is this great misconception that it rains all the time in yeah. Seattle. 
it doesn't rain all the time. I'll probably get kicked out of Seattle because I think it's the big, the best kept secret. But um, I always tell people from the Midwest, the thing is they measure rain out here in hundredths of an inch. So a lot of times the pavement's wet, but you never see rain actually falling from the sky. So it was an interesting move because people were like, oh my gosh, you're going to be able to stand living where it rains all the time. And it's like, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's green year round. And what is it snowing all over the uh, East Coast today? And here it's 50 degrees and the sun's out. So it's it's a great kept secret, I think, and uh, a super fun place to live. It's beautiful. It's picturesque. The There aren't any extremes. There's no humidity. There's no very little snow unless you go up into the mountains. And uh, it's very beautiful. So Yeah, I've always lived on the East Coast, so I can't imagine – what that would be like. Uh, we have many extremes, especially right. in Massachusetts. Right. <laughs> they had me at no humidity, but when yeah. the snow and ice went away too, I'm like, man, this might this okay. might really be the place. I could make my hair look really nice. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> um, well, Jennifer, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Walshy Naps podcast. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And if someone wants to reach out to you, maybe they, they listen to the show and they'd like to touch base or just send you a message, what is the best way for them to get in contact with you? Probably by email. And my email is my name, uh, my first initial, J Keltner, K-E-L-T-N-E-R at martingale-pub.com. Okay. And I will put that in the show notes too, just in case people didn't catch that or they're out, right. you know, at the gym when they're listening to this. And exactly. um, so you can click over, but, um, but that's terrific. And, and I really appreciate that. And um, I hope people will reach out because uh, it sounds like, you know, a, a really neat team to have the opportunity to work with. I'm sure that somebody listening has that magic moment. They're just waiting to share. So we'd love to hear from them. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much. And you've been listening to the Walshy Naps podcast. Visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you can sign up for my weekly email newsletter to get the best in sewing and blogging and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. Thanks to today's sponsor, larissadavis.com former art director of Quilting Arts, Stitch, Cloth Paper Scissors, and Modern Patchwork magazines. Larissa Davis loves collaborating with crafters to present their art in unique and thoughtful ways. Welcoming projects of all sizes, Larissa will bring your creative vision to life so you can keep crafting. Learn more at larissadavis.com. And thank you so much, and I'll see you next time. 